Please pray with me. Almighty God, we come to you this morning. We pray seeking from you the blessing of the Word of God to be made alive in our hearing today. Uh, Lord, make this a present and active Word among us. I pray, Lord God, that for those of us who need comfort, there would be comfort. For those who need assurance, there would be assurance. For those who need, uh, those who need to be inspired and motivated, Lord, we would find that this, this word from your scriptures reignites our faith. Lord, just come in the power of your spirit. Open our hearts to receive from you. Please grant me, as the preacher of your word, uh, the ability to speak your truth. Uh, Lord, hide me behind your cross. Don't let me speak any error from this pulpit. Lord, may you be glorified in all that I say and all that we do together this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we are so blessed because uh, we've had, I mean, really some great uh, scriptures, always good scriptures, but this morning I think particularly uh, that Romans chapter 8 passage, I think if you were to poll people, you would ask them, what's your favorite passage of scripture? For many people, something from Romans chapter 8 would probably be on the list. And I loved coming back to that passage as I prepared the sermon for this week. You know, it's a really also very providential in that it is a wonderful high note uh, for you to receive your pastor back. All things work together for good. Here he is. <laughs> and it's a wonderful high note for me to leave as your interim priest uh, for this summertime. It's been a, an amazing joy for me uh, to get to know you, to serve you in this community. Uh, I love the, the valley and I, I love the people in the valley and I especially have been very blessed and I love this church very much. You have done wonderful things here, Pastor Kevin. You've done a great work here and all of you together have done a great work here. So I wanted to uh, point out here that this is also a high note because Paul pins these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in order to instill to his readers in the city of Rome comfort, assurance, and joy. He wants, them, he wants to impart comfort, assurance, and joy. And in this scripture that we just heard from Romans chapter 8 this morning, Paul unflinchingly acknowledges the brokenness of the world and the very real suffering that word sufferer comes up a couple of times in this passage or in this, in this chapter. The very real suffering that is a part of the lives of believers. There is nothing saccharine, there's nothing Pollyanna about Paul's evaluation of the reality of suffering in believers' lives. But what he does is he demonstrates that our present... This is, if you want to know, sort of the key uh, thought for this sermon. Our present sufferings, our present sufferings are accounted for in the sovereign purposes of God, and God is greater than the bad things we experience in this life. Our present sufferings are accounted for in the sovereign pur purposes of God, and God is greater than the bad things that we experience in this life. Indeed, that's exactly what Paul has said just previous to the passage we read this morning. Back in Romans 8, verses 16 through 18, Paul says this, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits, that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs of, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may be also glorified with him. And Paul writes this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. So I know this morning that this is a very applicable passage for us, 
because many of us have troubled hearts in this place. I know, have, having had conversations, that many of us are enduring deeply painful life circumstances this morning. Uh, some of us are literally suffering today. And you may find yourself close to being shipwrecked on the shoals of despair. And if that's you, then this passage of Scripture comes at just the right time. Some of us may not realize it also that even though we think right this minute things are going very well, uh, you may not know that just very, in a very short time we may also be sharing in the sufferings of our brothers and sisters. So in all of our situations, God is offering us this. Listen, God is offering us this. He's offering us assurance this morning through these scriptures. And here's the assurance that he gives to us. And if you want to know where this sermon's going, here it is. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm going to tell you what I tell you, then I'm going to tell you, and then I'm going to tell you I told you. So that's how I preach. That's, I, I can keep up with that methodology. So here's the, here's the assurances that God gives us through his Apostle Paul in Romans 8 this morning. Number one is our prayer life is not up to us. Praise God. Our prayer life is not up to us. Number two, nothing can defeat God's good purposes for his children. Nothing can defeat God's good purposes for his children. Praise God. And then finally, if God, finally, God is for us. God is for us, and if that is true, nothing else matters. And if it's not true, nothing else matters. So let's just jump right in. Our prayer life is not up to us. Listen again to Romans 8, verses 26 through 34, or, or through 27, excuse me. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Our prayer life is not all up to us. Paul says that the Spirit helps us in our weakness in prayer. I don't know if you've ever been in this situation or these situations, but I have. I've been so overwhelmed by circumstances. I've been so overwhelmed by the complexities of the difficult, uh, difficulties before me. I've been so emotionally beaten down that I don't know what to say in prayer. And in those moments, I'm tempted to give up, but I, I just don't have the words to pray. If you have been there, then this passage is good news for you. Um, I, I think about some of those times when uh, I was in those places where I just didn't know what to pray. And so sometimes all I could do was just groan out, oh God, over and over again, oh God. Or just speak the name of Jesus over and over again, Jesus, Jesus. That's, that was the, the content of my prayer. That's all I could get out. Well, if that's you... If that's you, the Spirit of God, I want you to know this, the Spirit of God is translating those groans that are too deep for words. The Spirit of God is translating those groans into sheer poetic eloquence before the throne of God. Oh God, oh God. When the Spirit of God is interceding for us in those moments, it is pure poetic eloquence before the throne of God. John Bunyan said that the best prayers often have more groans than words. The best prayers often have more groans than words. Years ago, 
Uh, Lisa, would you, were you with me when I went to visit Charlie uh, and Marvell? Okay. For some reason, I had in my mind that you were, and then I went back, and I don't think you were. But years ago, and in fact, it was years ago this past week, uh, I went to visit my dear friend Charlie Cobb in my hometown. He had been one of the mentors, the two men who mentored me immediately after my conversion. And I went there because his wife, Marvell, had sent word to me that he was in extremely poor health, and he, want, he wanted to see me soon. So when I got there, when I got to their home, Marvell greeted me, and Charlie hugged me, but he didn't say a word. After uh, the latest in a series of strokes, or excuse me, a series of heart attacks, Charlie had had a massive stroke, and the part of his brain that controlled speech had just died. It had died. He could understand our conversations, but he could not contribute except maybe with some hand gestures and, and nodding his head a little bit. And I asked him, and this is why I said, Charlie, can you even think words? Can you think words? He said, he shook his head, no, he couldn't think words, which is bizarre to me. I said, uh, I said, I said to him, and as I asked him that, I remember he began to, he began to tear up. I said, well, Charlie, how do you pray? Because he had taught me how to pray. So, Charlie, how do you pray? And then there was this beaming smile, and Charlie tilted back his head, and he held up his arms like a child waiting to be picked up. You know that look. And that gesture, he, so he just, he just did this. Charlie, how do you pray? Tears rolling down his face. That gesture was so packed with meaning, it was full of love and surrender and hope and longing and joy. And he sat there with his arms held up, looking as if he was just waiting for his heavenly father to gather him up in his arms and take him to himself. I asked Charlie, I, in that moment, I said, Charlie, do you feel God's love around you? And he just beamed with joy and he nodded vigorously, yeah, I feel God's love. He couldn't speak. He couldn't even think words, but there he was, this silent saint. After all those years, he was still teaching me how to pray. Because ultimately, a prayer is a heart open to God. I wanted to be able to pray as good as Charlie could. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. When we can't pray and when all we can do is groan, God the Spirit calls out to the Father on our behalf and He prays exactly that which is in keeping with God's will on our behalf. And as He prays in accordance with God's will in and through us, we can be assured that we receive the answer to those prayers. And the second wonderful assurance here in this passage that St. Paul offers up is that nothing can defeat God's good purposes for his children. Nothing can defeat God's good purposes for his children. Listen again to Romans 8, 28. You could probably, I could just stand here and let y'all recite it to me. Because it's right there on that little plaque over your sink in your kitchen probably. But anyway, but we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. 
for those whom God for, uh, for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son and I wasn't going to I didn't want to delve into this I wanted to delve into this but it was a whole other passage I mean a whole other sermon really and I really I, we just didn't have time for it this morning but I want to just say this when Paul uses that term predestined there he means predestined but, but what he also means, which is very handy when people say exactly what they mean, uh, but what he means by this is, is you don't have to worry. God has you. He has you. He's accounted for everything in your life already. These are words of comfort for, the, for whom God uh, predestined or for the, whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he, just, uh, those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's so certain what God has done in your life, through your, your predestination and election, to be a child of God, it's so certain that when he says, that he doesn't say you will be glorified, he uses the term in the past tense. That's how certain it is. What a wonderful promise. That verse 28, we all know it and love it so much. And we know that for, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called, into, called according to his purpose. But we need to be careful when we use that verse and when we say that verse and we think about that verse, we need to be careful to understand exactly what is being promised here. Here's one of the ways we can be sure what is being promised. First of all, we know what this verse doesn't tell us, okay? It does not mean, and you might want to write this down, it does not mean that Christians will not suffer. Somehow I think this is... Uh, this, is, this permeates Western Christianity and certainly American Christianity. It does not mean that Christians will not suffer. This idea that somehow we get inoculated from suffering when we decided to follow Jesus. Where did you get that idea? I mean, the symbol of our faith is a cross. How did you think it was all going to just be fine? So many Christians in the West are shocked and offended when genuine, real suffering enters their lives. It's kind of like, whoa, I was having my devotions every day. I went to church with the Lamb. I should get extra points. Why is this suffering happening to me? Well, here's the truth, okay? And you really need to hear this, brothers and sisters. All the bad things that can happen to everyone else can happen and do happen to believers. All the bad things that can happen and do happen to everyone else can and do happen to believers. The difference is that the sufferings of believers have meaning in that they conform us to Christ. We are joined to him in our suffering, and if you don't have Christ, all you have left when you suffer is nihilism. There is no meaning to your suffering. We may suffer exactly the same things, but for Christians, that suffering unites us to Christ in his suffering. So following Jesus Christ does not inoculate us from hardship. Indeed, it often invites suffering. In fact, sometimes Christians suffer more than other people's people precisely because they are Christians. Did you know that? I hope you hear this. I need to hear this. I'm getting older. <laughs> I better buck up. <laughs> Remember that the passage that I read at the beginning of the sermon, the sermon, remember that passage, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 
And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. And if, you're, if you inherit all that Christ is and has, this is what this makes sense, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Our brother, Tim Keller, who just recently died of pancreatic cancer, said, Jesus Christ did not suffer, please listen, Jesus Christ did not suffer so that you would not suffer. He suffered so that when you suffer, you'll become like him. Wow. He goes on to say, the gospel does not promise you better life circumstances. The gospel promises you a better life. So when bad things happen to Christians, it's not as if something abnormal has occurred. What kind of bad things could be... Paul be talking about or thinking of here? Well, he actually lists a few in Romans 8.35. Trouble. He said tribulation. Trouble. Hardship. Persecution. Famine. Oh, God would never let me go hungry. Famine. Abject poverty. Nakedness. Nakedness. Danger. Death by violence. Sword. Beloved, we need to, in light of this, we need to be very careful about offering pious platitudes that infer that everything will work out for us and for our loved ones in this life. We so easily resort to that. Because when we say such things, we are not telling the truth about God, we're not telling the truth about the Bible, and we're not telling the truth about life. Pollyanna bromides are not speaking the word of faith. So if you think that's what the word of faith is, I'm going to help you in just a minute as we look at Hebrews 11 and find out what the word of faith actually is. Pollyanna bromides are not speaking the word of faith. Rather, so, such platitudes, and this is tough, guys, but you need to hear it. Those kind of platitudes where we just tell people, oh, it's all going to work out. It's all for the best. It, it is in the sense where we're united to Christ. But platitudes that infer that suffering is just going to go away are not truths. They are untruths that harm people. They harm those to whom we say such things. They harden the hearts of unbelievers. And they invite the derision and scorn of scoffers and mockers. And in fact, offering saccharine sentiments can invite the judgment of God because in some sense they constitute using the Lord's name in vain. It also doesn't mean that bad things aren't bad, okay? Rather, what this passage does mean is that God is bigger than the bad things that happen to us. And I'm going to say that again. In fact, I'm going to do a preacher thing here, okay? Say it with me. God is bigger than the bad things that happen to us. God is bigger than the bad things that happen to us. It means that there is nothing that God sovereignly allows into our lives that will not be used for our ultimate good and for our ultimate glory. It means that for Christians, listen, this life and this world are just not, this life and this world, this present age, are not big enough to contain all the good and all the glory that God has for us. This life, this world cannot contain 
all the good and all the glory that God has for us. There's going to have to be a new heavens and a new earth just to be big enough to begin to contain that. And that's exactly what the writers of, writer of Hebrews is talking about in Hebrews 11. And I told you this word of faith thing. Well, here it is. When he uses Abraham and Sarah as models of faith. This is what it says in Hebrews 11 beginning at verse 13. These all died in faith. And hear this. Listen. Not having received things promised. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. We're seeking a homeland. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. It means again in the words, this passage means in the words of Tim Keller, your bad things turn out for good. Here, this is so great. Your bad things turn out for good. Your good things can never be lost. And the best things are yet to come. Your bad things turn out for good. Your good things can never be lost. And the best things are yet to come. Praise God. And even when it doesn't all work out, for Christians, it still all works out. Our plans may fail, but God's plans never will. It means that God is so great that any adversity, any disaster can be used by him to bring a masterpiece about in our lives. And in fact, you are that masterpiece because God is conforming you and conforming me to be the image of his son. C.S. Lewis says, the real son of God is at your side. He is beginning to turn you into the same kind of thing as himself. He is beginning, so to speak, to inject his kind of life and thought, his Zoe, into you. Finally, if all goes well, turning you permanently into a different sort of thing, into a new little Christ, a being which in its own small way has the same kind of life as God, which shares in his power, joy, knowledge, and eternity. We call that theosis. And finally, St. Paul assures us that if God is for us, and he says, and he, the implication is God is for us. So since God is for us, and if that is true, nothing else matters. God is for us, and if that is true, nothing else matters. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with, him, also with him graciously give us all things? Brothers and sisters, even when everyone and everything is against you, with God you are still in the majority. You are never not in the majority. You're on the wrong side of history. Uh, I kind of know the, the one who has history in his hand. Um, I'm, I'm on, he, he's for me. And with him, I'm in the majority. It doesn't matter who's on the other team if God is on your side. If God is for us, who can be against us? We never have to doubt God's good will towards us. We never have to doubt that God wants the best for us because he's already, listen, he already gave the best. He gave Jesus. He's already given you the best. 
And, and that's what Paul means when he says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Everything else in life that is good is chump change compared to the all-surpassing gift of God's Son, Jesus Christ. So even when we are utterly defeated, God is for us. No matter what happens in your life, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, even in the moment where you feel you are at your greatest point of defeat, you are a winner. And that's not a pious platitude. No matter what, we win. We are victors because of Jesus Christ and God's unconquerable love for us. I, I know you probably remember this. I want to bring it to your memory again and add a little part of the story you may not know. You probably remember that in uh, February of 2015, 21 Coptic Christians, mostly uh, those 20 Christians were from uh, Egypt. Um, they were captured, captured by ISIS in Libya, and they were taken out to the seashore. And you probably remember seeing some of the pictures. They were dressed in orange jumpsuits, and the, and the uh, Islamists behind them all had really big knives, and um, they were all wearing black muhajadim attire. And uh, what's often not recounted in those, in the, if you heard the audio of those, um, that event, uh, those men are singing praise songs. Ha! What? If God is for us, who can be against us? They are, those men went to their deaths. They were, each one were, were leaned over and they were beheaded. I won't get graphic about how it was done, but it was bad. But the, until they could sing no more, until they could pray no more, they were singing praises to King Jesus. Their last words on this earth were Jesus, and they died joyfully. They had been tortured. They had been offered the chance to recant Jesus Christ and, and save their lives, and not a single one of them did it. And however, what many of us don't know was that there was a young man from Chad, from the country of Chad, named Matthew in that group, and he was not a Christian. He was among those that were captured. He was not a Christian. But as he watched those men with joy endure the suffering that they endured, and where they found that they were being united to Christ in their sufferings in the moments and the days leading up to their executions, he saw that the incredible faith of those men, and at the very last... This 21st guy, who was not a Christian, was asked by the uh, captors if he would re renounce Christ. He said, he had not been a Christian up to this point, he said, their God is my God. Their, that's what happens? Oh, it's so much more powerful than pious platitudes. It breaks the hearts of sinners. It shows them the goodness of our God. When they see us endure the trials set before us, clinging to Jesus and his cross, loving him and praising him in the midst of all of that, never flinching in the midst of hardship, knowing that if God is for us, who can be against us? It brings people to faith in Jesus Christ. Their God is my God. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.